All right, so we were right in the middle of some things last week. Let me just, again, remind you of the overall premise of the class. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about what we will experience in heaven. We do believe that God has given us some uh, remarkable insights into the future. The Bible tells us about the future. And so there's some things we can learn now about our heavenly life. We also have learned from Colossians chapter 3 that it is vital to us to set our hearts on things above and things to come. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. So we should think about that a lot. We should think about it every day. It's not some guilty pleasure. It's a commanded from God that we think about heaven, that we'd be renewed and refreshed in hope every day. The world, which is without hope and without God, needs to see Christians filled with hope. We need to see, it needs to see Christians that are expecting uh, that the future is bright, that's looking forward to the future. And I mean the rest of your life, definitely, but I also mean, in this class, eternity. And so for us, we're studying that. Now, the, the premise of my class is a certain aspect of our heavenly experience. Um, when we are in heaven, Heaven will be all about drinking in and appreciating and actually ourselves radiating the glory of God. That's what heaven's about. It's, it's drinking in the perfections of God, the attributes of God, and just seeing how magnificent God is. That's why God created the universe, is that there would be knowledgeable beings that would see the display of his glory and, and understand it. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's awesome. We'll be doing that in heaven. That's what heaven's all about. We will uh, see glory and we will be glory, both. So it's pretty awesome. Um, but in heaven, there will be a, I believe, past, present, and future experience of God's glory. The present experience of God's glory will be just the, the radiance of the place itself, the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem. It will be quite a spectacle. And we will really enjoy seeing it and exploring it and drinking it in. But nothing's better than the face of God himself, to be in the presence of God, to see him in the face, to be around the throne, to be falling down before him and drinking in his glory. Nothing will be better than that. Present glory in heaven. Future glory in heaven, the Bible says almost nothing about. It's just uh, something we would surmise, saying that we will be in resurrection bodies with resurrection minds in a whole new world. There'll be things to do. What they are, I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say much, but it'll be glorious. My book is about past glory, namely what's going on right now, what's been going on from the beginning of time, and how God has put himself on display in human history, and how he has put himself on display in redeeming a multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation for the praise of his glorious grace, and that we're going to study that. And it won't be boring at all. I know you're thinking we're going to be studying history in heaven. That's what we're doing. Like enrolled in a class with like notebooks and all that. No, it's nothing like that. It's going to be so spectacular, I believe, that I could make a good case for seeing history, not merely hearing about it. So we'll talk about all that maybe next week. But we're right in the middle of kind of the, the, the centerpiece of the curriculum, the heavenly curriculum. And so we're digging in now to say we are going to study the grand overarching plan that God had for human history. And so that's where we're at. So we're digging in right now, the grand plan revealed at last. And we talked about this in the last five to seven minutes, but I'm going to begin by overlapping this week. There is, was a plan from before the foundation of the world for human history. God had all this worked out. Like someone once said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? So God doesn't, isn't just kind of playing it by ear here. He's not like, whoa, you did that. Hmm, what shall I do now? That's not going on. God knows exactly the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He's an eternal being, and he's not in a reactive state, but actually 
is the planner and executor of his plan. And so there's many verses that teach this. Could someone read for us Ephesians 1, 4 through 6? Okay, so God chose us in Christ. We are the elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he did all of this for the praise of his glory or the praise of his glorious grace. So God made the plan before the creation of the world. Many other verses teach us as well. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to or for our glory. I like four better. So God had a plan which he predestined before the ages for our glory, that we would be glorious. Uh, not, not wretched sinners condemned in hell, but radiant saints redeemed by the blood of Christ and by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit, redeemed in heaven. That was a plan before the foundation of the world. Many verses teach this. 2 Timothy 1.9 as well. You can read them. Titus 1. Beyond that, we have to understand uh, not just the plan, but the hand, all right? This is uh, what we call in theology anthropomorphic language, the hand of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord. Jesus had hand and eyes and mouth because he became human. But God the Father has never been human. We are created in him, his image, but he's never been human. But yet the Bible speaks of God's body parts, uh, that kind of thing, just so that we can understand. The hand of the Lord, then, is God's sovereign power extended to execute what he has planned to do. That's the way we would understand it. He doesn't need a physical hand to do what he wants to do. He doesn't need eyes to see. He doesn't need ears to hear. He just sees and hears and acts. Um, but it helps us to speak in that kind of language. The Bible uses that kind of language. For example, Isaiah 14, 26 and 27. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him, his hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? No one. So God made a plan and then he extends his hand out to execute his plan, his sovereign plan. Again, Ephesians 1.11, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There is the same thing. It doesn't use the word hand, but it just says that he works everything according to his plan. So he writes the sheet music and then plays it. He composes the piece and then plays it. He writes the, the script for the play and then he executes it. So that's what Ephesians 1.11 is telling. There's a plan, a purpose to all of these things. And then God is working everything conformity to the purpose of will. There's not like 80% of it is according to the plan. Everything else is off plan. But God is sovereignly working these things. Now, this plan extends to the smallest and the greatest details of history. The smallest and the greatest. Acts 17.26. Could someone read that for us? Acts 17.26. All right, we're going to return to that again. But what do you get out of that verse? Acts 17.26. From one man, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. So what does it include? Everything. Everything. I mean, look, I don't know how many nations are in the United Nations. I have no idea. Less than 300, I think, but somewhere in, that, in the high 200s. God sovereignly orchestrated their boundaries, their, their histories, their, their locations. That's what this verse is saying. It's a very powerful verse. It's comprehensive, and it's amazing. Now, we Christians, yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much more we can say, and we, we will say, and we need to say. Um, a lot of national boundaries, if not all of them, but a lot of national boundaries are set up through human wickedness and avarice and greed and displays of power. And God judges people for those things. <laughs> 
So it's, it's like, you know, God's is the plan. Man is a responsibility when it comes to sin and wickedness. God doesn't do anything. In him, there's no darkness at all ever in God. There's nothing dark about his plans. But there's all kinds of darkness in human hearts in, in unfolding in history. So it's really quite remarkable. Yeah. Uh, he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Yeah. Brother, I know what you're talking about, and there's all kinds of juicy things we could veer off. I've got a 25-page handout, and I already know. <laughs> uh, yours is less. I need a bigger print. Mine's the big print edition, so 25. And Rosemary told me we're not finishing it, so, you know. Besides which, I need to preach. I mean, if I weren't preaching, if Andy Wynn were preaching today, I might stay here. What do you think? <laughs> but I am preaching today, so we're going to just forge ahead. We Christians believe in a linear view of history. All right? Revelation twenty-two thirteen says, this is Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That is not the handout. There's no cartoon in this week's handout. So if you have a cartoon, that's the old handout. All right. What I think is we, we don't believe in a cyclical history, karma, reincarnation, all of that stuff. We Christians don't believe in that. We believe in a beginning, middle, and end. Of human history. Not only that, Jesus says he is that history. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's very hard for us to really understand this simple I am statement. But when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's just zero in on one part of that. Jesus says, I am the truth. He's not saying I teach the truth. I understand it. I try to live out the truth. All of that is true. But he says something way above that. I am the truth. I am the truth of the human race. What does that mean? It's just, I'm so far above just merely understanding or teaching truth. I am the truth. That when you know the truth, it's me you know. And so that's overwhelming and powerful. What Jesus is saying here, I am history. I am the alpha and the omega and every letter in between. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. So, but again, there's that linear view of history. God planned a sequence of events. And what I'm arguing for uh, is that he planned it for the praise of his glory. So that every letter, the alpha letter, glorifies Jesus. And the middle letter and the last letter, all of it in some marvelous, mysterious, incredible way, glorifies Jesus. And what I'm saying is he's just not going to roll all that up, that alphabetic sequence up and throw it in the trash when we get to heaven. Forget it all. That was the old world. Let's just move on now to the new things. Why would he do that? What he's going to say is, you don't know 99.9% .9 of anything of, of all the things I did, but you're going to learn them. You're going to see what I did, and you're going to be amazed. You're going to be in awe at what I did to save you and your brothers and sisters. So let's watch and let's see, and that's, that's the thing that we're talking about here. Now, the entire sequence is more complex than we can possibly imagine. It really is. And I'm, I've studied church history a little. I know some things, and I just have a beginning sense of how complex this whole thing is. But it is incredibly complex. Providence itself is complex. Could someone read for us Romans 11, 33 and 34? That, that comes at a really remarkable place in the book of Romans. That, that remarkable place, Paul is dealing with the very complex, emotional, difficult question of the Jews. Why is it the overwhelming majority of the Jews, if God is so sovereign over all of these things, Romans chapter 8, if nothing can separate us from the love of God and all that, what about the Jews? Weren't they your people too? Why is it the overwhelming majority of the Jews are not believing in Jesus? So he spends 
three chapters of deep, difficult theology to answer that question. And it culminates in this assertion that he makes about categories, Jews and Gentiles. God has bound all men over to sin that he might have mercy on them all. It's incredible. In other words, everyone that gets to heaven will get there humble. We'll get there knowing they were redeemed from sin. Jews and Gentiles alike. No one there by their works. No one there boasting. No one there anything except humbled by God's mercy and grace. That's what he's chosen to do. And then Paul goes off in this doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. What he's saying there is I can't comprehend all of what God is doing in history. It's too complicated. It's deep beyond measure. I don't have enough string to reach the bottom of the ocean. I don't have enough skill to follow him like a tracker would follow a, a, a prey. I don't, I don't know what he's doing. It doesn't make sense to me. And many of us feel that way, feel that way even in our own lives. I don't know what God is doing here. I don't know why I had to go through that suffering. I don't know why this had to happen, why God didn't answer that prayer for healing or why this is going on. Why? I don't understand. There have been so many why questions that have gone from God's people up to heaven. Why did you do this? I don't understand. And so there's many aspects of providence that are just a mystery to us. Um, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's talking about a time for this and a time for that. It's very beautiful. So they wrote a song about it in the 60s or based on these words. And then he says, Ecclesiastes 3, 11, he's made everything beautiful in his time. In other words, everything has its place in God's providence. There's a time for this and a time for that and a time for the other. And everything's been woven together in this incredible tapestry, this, is, this amazing thing. God's worked all this out. He's made everything beautiful in his time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of, of men, of human beings. We have a sense of eternity. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Well, what does that mean to you? They cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Yeah, we, we can't follow the whole story. It's too, it's too complex, really. It's just too big. And so there's so many illustrations I've used. I just hinted at one, the tapestry illustration, where I saw a beautiful Persian rug in a, in a shop in Islamabad, and the guy was showing us how it was made in the 1920s, and it had all these complex knots and all that. It made no sense from the back. When you flip it over, you can see this beautiful picture. That's, many have used this illustration. Corey Tenboom used it. Um, others, uh, I, I like mechanical things. I think mechanical watches are amazing. Swiss watches, German watches, things like that. Every, every piece in this one particular watch, grand complication, 876 pieces, handmade, $3.5 million for a wristwatch. Are you out of your mind? Yes, you're out of your mind. But if you're a billionaire, whatever, $3 million, make that in about 10 minutes. So then you have a watch. Um, but I just think it's amazing how every part in that watch is handcrafted. And if I lift up one and I say, look at this, and show it to you, it's like, wow, it's really shiny and pretty. you know. But yeah, but it has a purpose. It was crafted for a purpose, and so each human being is like that. There's a, a craftsmanship in which God influences people's hearts and their minds and their experiences and then positions them to do something, even if they don't even know him or acknowledge him. They're just playing a certain role. And all of this does not violate human personality. It's demons that, that basically rape human personality by demon possession, in which people are howling at the moon and stripping off their clothes and cutting themselves and throwing themselves in fire and water, just contrary to any healthy understanding of self. God doesn't do that. God upholds self, upholds personality, upholds minds and wills and all that, and sovereignly gets everything he wants. 
And just because we can't quite figure that out and try to resolve it with bad theology, don't do that. God's sovereign, and people are free and make responsible, responsible choices, and you can't figure all that out. But God is sovereignly working out his plan down to the tiniest detail. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of God. All of it has a role to play. What I'm saying is in heaven you'll learn much of it, not all of it. You can't. And I believe some will learn more than others. I don't think we'll all be equally you know, able to take it in in heaven. I don't believe in a complete level equality of personhood in heaven. We didn't have that on earth. Some will have greater capacity than others. No one will ever get it all because then you would be God. You will never be omniscient. There's always more to learn. All right, other illustrations. The uh, Saturn V rocket, the Apollo 11 mission, moon mission, 50 years ago. Incredible. I remember as a little kid being so bored by the Apollo. Oh, another, like, I wanted there to be sports. <laughs> but since then, with a love of engineering, I realized just how unbelievable, I didn't actually didn't realize until I was working on this book how complex the Apollo missions were. 400,000 scientists, engineers, and technicians worked on it. 400,000. So you have to have, like, a, uh, like, administrative experts of organizing those different companies and getting them to harmonize and meet deadlines. Incredible. So people that might not even know anything about the science, nothing about rocket technology, but they're really good at people things and harmonization of big pro products. People are good at that. Others are experts in materials or, or uh, computer programming or other things. They had to develop whole new aspects of computer programming that didn't exist in 1962 when JFK made the challenge. 5.5 million parts, independent parts, lifted off from the launching pad. 5.5 million. The Apollo 13 mission showed if one of them, if it's the wrong one, if one of them goes wrong, people die. They don't make it back. So it was one little part and the oxygen tank sparked and blew off half the ship. And so that's one part. And so it's amazing they, they made it and, and came back. It's really incredible. I'm saying that getting a multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation saved across 20 plus centuries of history is more complicated than that, vastly more complicated. And I'm also saying more than that, God wants you to learn more of it in heaven. He wants you to see what he did. He wants you to look back and see what he has achieved. J.I. Packer, thanks Tom for doing that. J.I. Packer in his, um, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, has a chapter entitled, God's Wisdom and Ours. And uh, I summarized this last week. You've got all the text in here. I don't have time to read it, but I'll summarize it again as I did last week. He used an illustration of being at the York Railway Station. And he probably had this. Uh, maybe he had a friend that worked for this train station. And he said, if you just stand on the platform, you really won't understand all the coming and going. It won't make any sense. There's so many different tracks and there's so much complexity. But you may know, know somebody and get invited up into the signal station where you can get a big picture view of all the trains, all of them that are coming into the York Station, and why that train is going to be stopped for five and a half minutes, and this one is going to be permitted to go, or go only halfway, and then others, and you get a sense of the whole thing by all these signal lights. What he's saying is we make a mistake if we seek that kind of knowledge now. If we, if we try to understand the big picture down to the details. And usually people do that because some sorrow has come into their lives, some difficulty or some situation they can't understand, and they feel that God owes them an explanation. Did you, do you notice, like in the book of Job, God says a lot of things to Job, but he never tells him about Satan and have you considered my servant. He doesn't get into any of that. 
He never says, Job, I want, I want to take him aside and say, I want to tell you why all this is happening to you. He never does it. He just says, where were you when I made the world? <laughs> and he, he talks rough to him for three chapters and it heals him. And that's just God knows how to do therapy and he knew what Job needed and Job was so seriously put in his place that he put his hand over his mouth and never questioned God again and would call, count it the greatest experience of his life when God talked to him. I've heard of you with the ear, but now my eyes have seen you and I despise myself in sackcloth and ashes. So that despising of self, despise just means I've lowered myself much lower than I was. I thought I was going to call you to the bar of my justice. I was going to read you out. That is not ever going to happen. You are the infinite God. So he had, but notice he never gave him an explanation. He never told him anything about his own situation. He just said, I'm God and I know what I'm doing. What J.I. Packer is saying, rightly, is in this life, we are wrong to seek such a detailed explanation about things that are happening to us. But let me read the last paragraph of that chapter. Let us see to it then that our own request for wisdom takes the form of a request for these things, which is a humble submissiveness, um, a trust in God, a knowing that God is great and wise and powerful. Let's seek those things. Don't seek specific explanations for why this or that did or didn't happen. That he's not, he doesn't owe it to you. And he may not ever give it to you. He says that we do not frustrate the wise purpose of God by neglecting faith and faithfulness in order to pursue a kind of knowledge which in this world it is not given us to have. Well written, but I'm writing about the next world. Any chance that God will lift us up into the York signal box in the next world and say, let me show you the big picture. And I'm thinking he will. I'm thinking he's going to teach us the purpose of all of these things. Because again, other than that, why did he do it? God already knows himself. And why has he already told us so many things in the Bible? Hasn't he given us an explanation? Do you know why? Can you give a good explanation for why Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt? Why that would have been much to the purpose of God? Did Joseph have any sense of that at the end of his life? At the end of his life? Yes, he did. He had it when he first met his brothers and knew that. He said, I know why God sent me here. Because there's a famine coming. <clears throat> and he sent me here to save many lives. Did Joseph have the whole big picture? Did he have the Red Sea crossing and the 10 plagues? No, he didn't know those things. They hadn't happened yet. Do we have a better picture of those things than Joseph? No, he's up in heaven. He knows it all. But I mean, <laughs> than Joseph had at that moment, we do. Because now we've seen Christ. And there's a greater exodus that was coming for which the first exodus was only a dress rehearsal and a type and a, and a symbol. So what I'm saying is clearly the process has begun of us learning God's big, grand, glorious plan. Why would it just be terminated at the end of the world? It's like, all right, you know enough. Now we're getting on to new things. It makes no sense. There is so much glory woven into this tapestry. He wants to unroll it and show it to us. That's what I'm saying. All right, so as I was trying to figure how in the world I'm going to write chapter 8 without it morphing into a really poorly done summary of world history, and it would have been poorly done because this whole book's got to be somewhere around 180 pages, and I got to do, give like an eight-page summary of world history. Are you out of your mind? Anyway, so I'm sitting there. I'm like, I actually had a legal pad, and I wrote Adam and Eve, Noah, Tower of Babel, Call of Abraham, and I'm like, what am I doing? Other people have already done this. I did it years ago, all right? So then I started looking through some books, and I forgot that I had this book. See? There we go. 
This is called the wall chart of world history. Now, I need two people to help me with this. Actually, maybe three. Would you help me? Sure. Would you? How about you, brother? You willing to do this? All right, so here we go. This, let me tell you what this is, all right? Let me open up. This is history shown as like rivers and tributaries. Starts with Adam and Eve, and it ends in 1988 with Ronald Reagan as president and Margaret Thatcher. So you got Adam and Eve and Margaret Thatcher, all right? So here we go. All right, so go ahead, pull it, and then you just stand where you are. Just keep going. All right, if you could actually go under, duck under. There you go, and you got to hold the middle. All right, here we go. Okay, all right, hold it up. There we go. All right, that's what this scholar did with six millennia, six millennia of human history from 4004 BC, the date set by Archbishop Usher for the creation of the world, up to Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. And so it's got all of this, all of these tributaries here. It's like a river that then breaks off. Like I didn't know that Spain conquered Portugal and had it for 125 years and then Portugal got their freedom back somewhere around the 1300s. Like, what do I know about Portuguese history? What do you know about Portuguese history? And, and in there, in each of the tributaries, they're just lined up by nations. All they are are heads of state. That's all, just you got this king, that king, the other king, king of Denmark. King Hackham the second, King Hackham the third. You know, I don't, I don't know hardly any of these people. This is 1988, um, and it's the best they could do to get basically the United Nations into, you know, this size chart. Now, my point here is that this is a gross oversimplification. You understand what I'm saying to you now? This is a gross oversimplification. There's nothing told about these people, whether they're good or bad kings or queens. There's very few, there's a few famous people along the top, inventions, Copernicus, Galileo, different ones, but just a few, and not much about what they did and who they were. They got councils, so there's a basic Christian bent here, so there's councils that are circled, like these circles are councils and different things that happen. So anyway, let's, would you mind guys folding it back up for me? Thanks. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> this plan is this overarching grand plan is more complex than we can ma imagine. What God is doing in all of this is not about the rise and fall of empires. Thank you so much. The rise and fall of empires is just the, 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 um, the canvas on which he's painting this glorious painting. That's all. These empires are, are temporary. Nebuchadnezzar had a sense of that, didn't he, after his mind was turned back from an animal to a human. He'd already had the dream about the statue. Remember, the head of gold and chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay. That's a small version of world history where the whole thing turns to dust, chaff, blown away, and then there's this kingdom that lasts forever. So what God is saying is the human empires and kingdoms that rise and fall are just all of them temporary and not the point or ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, a kingdom that will never end and that is glorious and radiant. And then who will be in that kingdom? Who will be the citizens, uh, the subjects? Subjects, I mean, we Americans, subjects, all right? There's a king, all right? And we have to submit. We don't vote on him. He's the king. We will be subjects of that kingdom as we repent and believe we enter the kingdom of God and he's the king. That's what it's all about. But the details of the story are glorious. That's the point I'm making here. So um, where am I in this? 
All right. My 15-foot wall chart. Professor Edward Hall. All right. 15 feet. All right. Look at this. I looked at one panel. I was going to have Tom do this for me, and I wanted him to keep working for me uh, and for the church, so I decided not to have him count all the proper nouns on the 15-foot wall chart. So I did it myself. Um, I chose one panel from 1300 to 1700. It was just one of those panels. Um, and so I went from top to bottom, Scotland, England, France, Austria, Bohemia, Germany, Hungary, Prussia, Poland, Russia, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Portugal, Castile, Aragon, Sicily, Naples, Papal Rome, Greek Empire, Ottoman Empire, that is Turkey, Egypt, Persia, Tartary, and China. That's what they put on the left-hand side of the 1300, the year 1300 mark. What you have to know is even with what this guy's trying to do, how much is not even talked about? Nothing in Africa, nothing in South, Central, or North America, nothing. Nothing in Southeast Asia, nothing about Japan, nothing. So as complex as the 15-foot wall chart is, it's just a beginning of even what he's trying to do. If all you did was just were able to cover all the inhabited geography, most of those places don't have a written history. There isn't uh, that history. You have to get it from archaeology or you don't get it at all. And so it's, what I'm saying is even what this, this simplistic summary is doing, I counted, what is it, 382 heads of state on that panel, approximately. You're like, well, how can you only know? I, it's like some of the print was so small I couldn't read it. And I'm like, whatever. I'm just making a point. History is complex. All right? That's all. So you get it. These things are beyond tracing out. Now, why do I think he will teach us history? Someone read John 15, 15 for us. Wow. I am going, I'm elevating you now to a higher position in terms of intimacy with me. I'm bringing you into my inner circle. I'm no longer calling you servants now. I'm calling you friends. We know there's a higher title than that. What's higher than friends? Brothers and sisters, right? That's higher than friends. So would you think if the criteria here in John 15, 15 is greater knowledge of what the Father is doing, then I would think in heaven it would be even greater, not less, not a reduction of a sense of human history, but an expansion of it. I want you to know everything I learned from my Father, everything that the Father's entrusted to me. That's why I'm arguing like I am, that in heaven we'll learn the things that God has done. Like God with Abraham, he says in Genesis 18, 17, before he sends the angels to investigate and to rescue Lot and his family, remember that, before they destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with burning uh, fire and brimstone, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And he answers, this is a deliberation within the, within the Godhead. He answers, no, I will not hide it from him. I will let him know what I'm about to do. So I'm sending some angels down to see if the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is as great as it here. Otherwise, I will know. He knows exactly what's about to happen. Abraham knows. And then he begins to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story. The point I'm making is God's intention is to reveal his plan to his children. He wants us to know what he's doing. Why? Why does God want us to know what he is doing? And then in heaven, we will say what he has done. Why would he want us to know it? Exactly. So we can see his glory, how he did it, what he did, beautiful. So we can say, oh, like Paul did, oh, the depths of the rich. That's a worship word. Like, I am blown away by this. 
So do you think it would be for the amazement and wonder of the redeemed in heaven? I want you all to be amazed. Let's zero in on a detail. I'm going to zero in on this one particular day and this one particular moment when I did X. And then he'll teach it to us. We'll understand the context. We'll see the complexity. We'll see his hand and we'll say, what a mighty God you are. And you'll be like, how much of that? Eternity? Infinity? And you're like, well, is that, I mean, I don't think there is a better way to spend eternity or infinite time. Uh, you may be like, well, I'd rather do this for eternity and infinity. It's like anything you can think of, you'll like run out of interest in it. So God alone, the infinite being, can hold your attention for eternity, and he's got plenty to show you, lots to show you. All right, what's interesting here, I'm not going to read through all this, but I would commend it to you. When I was memorizing the book of Deuteronomy, I was surprised by Deuteronomy 2 in particular. And then it was confirmed by Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according uh, to the number of the sons of Israel. That's a, a very interesting and strange verse. It's hard to understand. But what he is saying is similar to what Paul says in Acts 17, 26. God had the whole planet figured out and divided it up based on his sovereign plan concerning the sons of Israel. Then if you look at the detail that he gives as he is giving to the Jewish nation their limitations in their pilgrimage from Egypt through the, through the desert into the promised land. Okay? He says this, Deuteronomy 2, When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them into war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Whoa, I thought you only cared about the Jews. No, he cares about every nation. He's sovereign over every nation. So I'm not giving you any Ammonite territory. Now look at what he says after that. That too was considered a land of the Rephaites who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Listen to this. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. Uh, that sounds like the book of Joshua. But it's not. It's just two Gentile nations. So you're saying God was involved in Gentile history? More than you can possibly imagine. That's what it means that God determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. He gets involved. He rolls up his sleeves and does things. And then, amazingly, he then holds people accountable if their motives are terrible, which they always are. I mean, they are. They're covetous, greedy, self-worshipping. That's why empire builders build empires. They build their cities with bloodshed. Read about it in Habakkuk chapter 2, and God judges them for it. But I'm saying he's sovereign over it. And you're like, why is he doing that? What is his purpose? Well, he does it for the praise of his glory. He controls who rises to power and who, who isn't. He says to Pharaoh... Exodus 9.16, I raised you up for this very purpose, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why I raised you up. So Pharaoh, you, you say you don't know me. Remember he said that? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he's about to get an education. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll enroll you in my 10-course lesson, all right? And when we get done, you'll know exactly who I am and what I can do, and you will let Israel go. But you're going to stay enrolled to all, for all 10 lessons. You're not going to get to skip any of them. All right, you're going to go through all of them. I'm going to harden his heart to make certain we do all 10, including the terrible last plague on the firstborn with the Passover. God had all of this sovereignly planned up. But he says, Pharaoh, you don't know me, but you have your throne because I gave it to you. And you'll have it as long as I decide to let you keep it. 
And that's true of every potentate and minor official in every nation on earth. He is sovereign over all of it. He controls kings and their decisions. The king's heart is in the water course. Uh, uh, sorry, the king's hand is in the ha- uh, heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. That's a fascinating verse. He sovereignly overrules decisions. He keeps his eye on the prize, never forgets what he's doing. His purpose always is his own glory in the salvation of the elect, the redemption of the elect. Go ahead. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Guys, we are, doing, we are doing great. We're on page eight of my 25-page handouts. I am really encouraged. Let's just keep going. Um, all right, Isaiah 45. See, the thing is, it's hard to just give summary because you guys already knew the summary. What's really interesting is the details. For example, Isaiah 45. He's talking to Cyrus the Great 125 years before Cyrus the Great was born. So God wrote you a letter, Cyrus, read it. <laughs> this is a century old like mind-blowing to think if his parents had the freedom to name their son something else other than Cyrus. Uh, but it's right there in the Jewish scripture. And what he says is, I'm going to go ahead of you and I'm going to give you an empire, though you do not acknowledge me. He says it openly in Isaiah 45, though you have not known me and you do not acknowledge me, I'll go ahead of you and I'll cut through bars of iron and I'll give you, I will, I will level cities and I'll give it to you. And it's like, well, is it because he loves Cyrus? He actually calls him his anointed. It's an interesting thing for Isaiah to call Cyrus God's anointed, but not anointed as savior of the world, not anointed as son of David, anointed to do that role, chosen and positioned to do that. One of the things you know Cyrus did is let the Jews go back and rebuild the temple. So he did have a very clear role to play as described in Chronicles. He, he really had a clear role to play and God's sovereign hand was on him. The rise and fall of empires, we've talked about that, so I'm not going to uh, mention it. Um, all of these things. The point is the salvation of God's elect, but not just their salvation, but his relationship with them and their understanding of him. That God is a God of love and he shows his love by giving the greatest gift he could ever give to his children. And that gift is himself. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. I am heaven for you. I'm giving you myself. So he's paying himself out to us so that we would feast on him and all that he is. And heaven is a, uh, sorry, history, human history is a great way to, uh, to learn the glory of God. So Acts 17, 26, from one man, he made every nation of men and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In other words, God's sovereign purpose over history is so that people would be saved and have a relationship with him. Isn't that incredible? That's why. It's all about relationship. He wants to know you and have you know him, that you would be his people and that he would be your God and that you would be in an intimate relationship with him. And relationships are always based on history, aren't they? The things that we did together, things that we shared. And so uh, for me, it's it's really pretty, pretty awesome. Now this includes the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. God predicted that the gospel would start in Jerusalem and go through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He planned that it would go to the distant coastlines and to the far islands. Isaiah talks about this a lot. And so Jesus then quoted that in the upper room. 
Um, he said, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. God had planned this. And not only that, but he wrote it. This is what is written. So it was written out. Where? Well, like Isaiah 66, 19, for example. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians. They're really good archers. That's interesting, isn't it? It's like, why does God care about archery? <laughs> God cares about everything. I mean, they're really good at ceramics. Or they have some excellent painters. Because those common grace blessings, even the people weren't Christians, they're displays of his glory. And it's especially if they're not Christians that he wants us to see it and give him the glory because they never did. The really great painters and sculptors and all that who never knew him and never gave him glory for their skill will do it on their behalf. Say, boy, that person was a really excellent artisan. To God be the glory. So that he will get the glory that he was robbed, that was robbed from him, that we'll do it. That's our job, that we would see what he did. So anyway, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. I don't know if it could be clearer. I'm going to send people all over the place, all over the world. Those are missionaries and Christians that travel and go and share the gospel and the gospel spreads. Awesome. So every era of church history will be recounted. The lessons and heroes and heroines from each era will be heard, studied, and praised to the praise of God's glory. The early uh, church era from the apostles to the gradual spiritual conquest of the Roman Empire, the spread of the gospel among the barbarian tribes in Europe, the movement of the gospel east towards India by Thomas and others, slowly, gradually, the light of Christ spread in every generation. What we've noticed, God doesn't care at all about GPS locations. Uh, he gives and, and he, he takes a, a region and it glows with the gospel. And two generations later, it's dead. They're dead, dead, spiritually dead. It happens again and again. There have been so many centers of glowing centers of evangelicalism. Geneva was the finest school of Christ there been on earth since the time of the apostles. Not anymore. Okay. There was a time you wouldn't want to be anywhere before that. You wouldn't want to be anywhere but Wittenberg. That was the number one place you could be to hear the gospel preached by Martin Luther. Not anymore. I'm not saying there are no Christians in Wittenberg and no Christians in Geneva. There are. But it's not a glowing center. It's not like the hottest place to be. There was a time Boston, Massachusetts, my hometown, was the number one place, I think, on planet Earth to be to hear the gospel during the First Great Awakening when George Whitfield preached there on the danger of an unconverted clergy. Not well received, but a lot of people came to faith in Christ. And Jonathan Edwards said, if there had been a, a brick of gold on the street, people would walk by and left it there so they could get to church and hear the gospel preached. So for a short time, that was a glowing center. But God just keeps moving. The wind blows where it wishes. The spirit moves here and there. He's not looking for GPS locations. He's looking for people. And so in every generation, you know, the, the church, uh, certain streams of Christianity, pietism, puritanism, rises and then declines as the next generations don't hold on to the teachings like they should and aren't as passionate as their parents were. They didn't suffer as much and they just kind of give it up. But then God raises up other people. He's just been doing this. And we're going to be able to trace all of this out. We're going to find out, as Richard Baxter said, the Puritan, God breaketh not all men alike. It's an interesting word, breaketh. It's kind of like breaking a horse, like... Uh, Bronco busting or something like that. You could watch. It's like, well, are we horses to be broken? Kinda. <laughs> like, are you? Do you find yourself to be strong-willed? Um, 
Well, one thing we've learned is God is stronger will than you are. And he knows how to break people for their own good. But what Baxter is saying is he doesn't break everyone the same way. He uses different approaches. And to be able to study how God saved the redeemed, like how he saved Saul of Tarsus, was different than how he might have saved one of your sons and daughters. It's just different. God works, and only by the sovereign power of the Spirit does anyone get saved. But the process is different for different people. And so we will be able to be gathered uh, together and see how people were saved. Um, The elect will get redeemed one at a time by the hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ with faith. But who the evangelist is or the series of evangelists is varied, right? Mothers and fathers, I think in the end, will get the lion's share of credit for the categorically more people will be in heaven because their parents share the gospel with them than any other category, than missionary, traveling evangelist, pastor, child worker in a church. All of those have their, their armies following them, but parents by far the most. And I think mothers will be, especially even between them, having had the greatest influence of all categorically on planet Earth for Christ. So there's a tremendous value in, in you know, the, language, the, the statement mother tongue, But imagine if the mother's a Christian, and not only is she teaching the mother tongue, but she's teaching the gospel day after day after day after day. And then, lo and behold, they're Christians when they're 20 and 30 and 40. And fathers have a huge role to play, obviously, categorically. So, but just to be able to see all that and to see how God used it, brothers and sisters will lead many to Christ. Sons and daughters will lead their own parents to Christ sometimes. Doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Extended family members, tribal and community leaders. It's happened a lot. The chieftain comes to Christ, and then suddenly everyone in the village, you know, has come to Christ. Is it genuine? Don't know. (laughs) Don't know. But God has used leaders like Constantine and others, and then I bet genuine conversions happen after Constantine declared himself to be a Christian. God just uses these things for his purposes, wars and rumors of wars, Um, all kinds of things. In 1536, I read about this. uh, John Calvin, at that point, 27-year-old scholar from France, was moving from the persecution in his homeland to find a quiet place to study and write books. That was him. He was a bookworm, absolute scholar bookworm, a geek, a theology geek. He was trained to be a lawyer and then uh, wrote uh, his first edition of Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was very different than his final edition, but it made him famous. And as he was traveling, there was a war between the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, King of Spain, basically. And that war glutted the road to Strasbourg, where I think he was trying to get. And so he had to divert through Geneva. Had no plans to go to Geneva. William Farrell, who was trying to reform Geneva, heard that John Calvin was spending the night in the city, went and found him and sought to persuade him to stay and help with the Reformation in Geneva. Calvin had no interest and said, effectively, I'm going to find a quiet place to study and write books. Farrell went nuts. He went thermonuclear on him. I know that was uh, like 16th century thermonuclear. He's like, may God curse your quiet rest while the Reformation in Geneva founders because you weren't here to lead it. Whoa. (laughs) It's like he melted. And then basically with a little hiatus spent the rest of his life, as I said earlier, uh, that John Knox said, making Geneva the most perfect school of Christ there's been since the time of the apostles. So... Why did he end up in Geneva? Because there was a war that none of you had ever heard about, probably, between the king of France and the king of Spain that lasted for about a year and a half. 
because it glutted the roads and kept him from going to the place where he wanted to go. Does God actually do that? Does he orchestrate a war so that John Calvin can end up in Geneva? Well, yes, among other purposes. Like I said, it's more complex than you can possibly imagine, but that was at least one of the purposes, and it's not like God didn't know that would happen. He knew exactly what he was doing. How many of these things are going to happen, all right, and that we're going to learn? All right, so that's one chapter. So that's the big picture, and you'll learn it. All right, but there's certain details that I think are pretty cool, and I want to zero in on them. One of them is God's sovereign control over tyrants. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? People who rise up and say they're going to destroy Christianity. It's going on now in China and other places. And Psalm 2 says God does what when he hears that? He laughs at him. <laughs> it's like, bring it on. <laughs> you don't know who I am. And what God loves to do, I love, I love this. If you go at God's laughter, Psalm 2, you know, he, he laughs at them and then he terrifies them and, and pours out wrath on them. And therefore, the psalmist gives you advice. O kings, be wise, believe in Jesus. That's basically what he says. Kiss the son. The son is Jesus. So believe in him, trust in him, and don't fight him because you will lose. You can't fight God. And so God sovereignly orchestrates even the rage of tyrants to achieve his purposes. God's laughter is interesting. All right, listen to this. Psalm 18, 25 and 26. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But listen to this. To the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. In other words, you're tricky, I'm trickier. That's what God says. And God does this. He does this all the time. You dig a special hole and make a special trap, you're going to fall into it or be snared in it. He, he just does this. It's like you design and craft your own destruction. I'll let you do that. I'll let you weave the net and then watch what happens. That's God's laughter, is that they get to kind of name the terms of their own demise and also the terms of the explosive spread of Christianity in their realm. They, they get to name the terms for this. It's really interesting. Jo Job 5.13, which Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians, he catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. So God sovereignly orchestrates plans and uses their own devices. Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 27, if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will fall back on him. Of course, the book of Esther is a clear example of this. Remember Haman scheming against the Jews and specifically against Mordecai. His wife and his friends urged him to build a gallows, which he did 75 feet high. What's that, like a six-story building? What in the world? So that's quite a gallows, all right? So it's made for Mordecai, all right? Who ends up hanging on it? We know Haman ends up hanging on it. Does God actually do that kind of thing? All the time. Is God worthy of praise for doing that kind of thing? That's why the book of Esther's in there. God isn't mentioned once. <coughs> but he's all over that, isn't he? He's sovereignly orchestrating these things. And, and it's all hidden. That's why his name isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, and it's in the Bible so that you know that many of God's works of providence are hidden. He stays behind the scenes orchestrating things. But then the veils pull back in heaven. We get to see just how marvelous the plan is. Many people just love the book of Esther for its display of providence. The fact that just at that moment, Haman walks in when the king says, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, who would that be more than me, he thinks. Well, I think you ought to do this and this and this and this. Like, now, if he had said, I want to honor Mordecai, what should I do? It would have been a whole different answer. 
So it's a careful orchestration of everything. He spent the night unable to sleep and reading about how Mordecai saved his life. It's like, I'm ready. I want to honor that guy. Nothing was ever done for him. What should we do for him? At that moment, Haman walks in wanting to say, I want to kill Mordecai. I mean, it's a, you're laughing because it's funny. It's like, this is what you're trying to play, play checkers. He's playing not chess. He's playing some game you don't even know. He is at so much infinitely above. His ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts higher than a tyrant's. And so it's just humorous. And he wants us to join with him in the laughter over six millennia of his controlling of wicked people. He's been doing it all along. And we ended up just fine. We ended up radiant, glowing in heaven with no regrets and no sorrows and just happy. And it's like, now let me tell you the story of how it happened. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? All right. So God gives judgment over tyrants. Just move on. Examples from history. There's so many. story about Voltaire is really good. I almost lost the story of Voltaire because I was told that it wasn't true. How he said, within 100 years, no one will be reading the Bible. And then they used his house to print Bibles and distribute them. Well, I came to find out, like, actually, it didn't happen. But it was an atheist and an agnostic that said it didn't happen. It did. So, and there's clear historical proof that the Bible Society, in, it was in Geneva, actually, ironically, uh, that they used Voltaire's house there to spread, to dis disseminate Bibles. Pretty cool. Um, all right, so there's all that evidence there. One of my favorite stories, and I've told this to you before, is the story of Mao Zedong during the Communist Revolution, actually during the Cultural Revolution. He's cracking down on Christians in China, decides to slaughter them, kills so many of them. I think more deaths can be ascribed to the rule of Mao than any other ruler in history, just because of the vast population of China and his terrible farming collective rules that force people into a level of starvation that was unheard of in, in human history just because there's so many Chinese and people were afraid to tell Mao what was happening. So he had, and you don't bring bad news to him. And so people died and died and died and died. But he also is killing Christians. And he's killing them and killing them and killing them. Gets to a certain point, he said, well, I could just kill them all. But what, basically what fun is that? Why don't I just do what I can to discredit Christianity? So I'm going to seek to discredit. I'm going to take the few Christians, the leaders and all that that I know, and I'm not going to just kill them. I'll just, you know, I'll just debilitate them. And I noticed that like, like a fire, they get strength from being together. It's like logs. If I drag them apart, the fire will go out and Christianity will be discredited. So he scattered Christians all over China. <laughs> scattered them. Put them in every locality where no one had ever heard of Christ before. Well, my, my missions professor said that the Chinese Communist Party in the 1960s became the greatest mission sending agency of the 20th century. <laughs> and not only that, but in every locality, he said, I want to give them humbling jobs like garbage collector and postal carriers where they go from house to house every single day. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how many Christians there are in China now, but well, well over 100 million. And Mao's in the grave. And, and you look at that, and it's just Psalm 2 laughter. It's like you can't defeat God. I just heard this one. This is really cool at the mission uh, conference I went to last week, um, two weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> a good friend of mine told me about this. Um, it, the Islamic Republic of Iran, there are amazing things going on for the gospel in Iran. It's incredible. Max Stiles has told me some of these things. But those people are basically seeing if this is what Islam is, I don't want it. Is there anything else? Yeah, there actually is. There's Christianity. And so there are numbers of people coming to Christ. 
Well, the Islamic government of Iran is not issuing missionary visas to Southern Baptist missionaries. I don't know if you knew that. Are you aware of that? They're not willing for, frankly, Americans of any sort to come into uh, their country. But for some strange reason, they have a wonderful relationship with communist Cuba. Well, what most people don't know is that there's a revival of evangelical faith going on in communist Cuba. My, I've got a couple of friends that go to Cuba all the time and are working with evangelical leaders, and it's really exploding there in communist Cuba. And the government of Iran has asked Cuba to send skilled doctors to come and deal with certain things in Iran. Guess who's lining up to be those doctors? Solid, committed Cuban Christians who go there and share the gospel in Iran. I just think that's wonderful. I think that's like Psalm 2 laughter. It's just God saying, okay, communist Cuba is paying for Christian missionaries to go to Islamic Republic of Iran. And uh, how much of that has happened? So I think that's beautiful. All right, let me give you a survey of the things we're going to next week. We will most certainly have to finish this class because I can't take two weeks out of the Christ and Culture study. All right, so the next chapter is Hero Stories and Amazing Providences. We covered a little of it tonight. But heroes and heroines, Hebrews 11 is all about that. Those of whom the world was not worthy. Just learning what our brothers and sisters suffered for the gospel and not being jealous of them or thinking, you know, being threatened by them, but just honoring them and being amazed at what God did in and through them. When it says those of whom the world was not worthy, the author to Hebrews says, I don't have time to get into all these details. Time would fail me. He says it right in the text. Well, time's not going to fail us in heaven. We'll be able to learn the stories. So, so Hebrews 11 is just the start of what men and women of faith did for the glory of God. You know how he just summarizes them. People, you know, uh, fought, fought battles and, and received back their dead, raised to life again. And he just gives a bunch of summary things that happened. Doesn't even say names. And so the idea of going back over that and learning what God has done, the persecutions that people went through, um, the sufferings that they went through, the martyrs who died, and what their stories were, the things that the Holy Spirit laid on their hearts to say right before they died to their captors. They're marvelous. And to be able to see the courage that God gave to, uh, for example, Perpetua back in the Roman era, this is one of my favorite statements, is she's on trial before the Roman prefect. And she said to him, while I live, I shall defeat you, and if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. <laughs> that was before Tertullian said the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. She knew that. She knew if you slaughter me, and they did kill her and her seven sons. And guess what? Her seven sons were killed in various parts of the city of Rome, and each one of them bore strong witness to Christ as they died. So similar to Mao, they were scattered all over Rome sharing the gospel as they died. Those martyr stories are worth telling, aren't they? To go back over them and see what God has done. You know the listing of David's mighty men? Remember the guy that went down in a snowy pit and fought some lion or some other guy that killed... Was it Shamgar that killed a bunch of people with an ox goad? Now that's a warrior. 800 Philistines killed with an ox goad. How do you do that? One at a time. (laughs) I mean, really, it's not a weapon of mass destruction, an ox goad. But there's a courageous... Why are those stories in there? So that the far greater stories of the spread of the gospel will be lodged in our minds. It's like, I would love to be one of Jesus' mighty men and women. It creates a certain healthy ambition in us that we would live in such a way that things we do would want to be retold so that we have a certain healthy ambition. So I want to talk about that. Looking at wounds and scars. There's so much good stuff in here, but we're out of time. We're out of time. So next week we'll try to close it up, finish it up. Tom, would you be willing, brother, to close us in prayer? Thanks.